Hey everyone, here is our latest Patreon preview. This one we go over a little-known general strike, in fact, one of the first, if not the first, in U.S. history that happened in New Orleans in 1892. If you'd like the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It's the only way we get any funding for putting all of this research in, and we genuinely, genuinely appreciate it. If you can't afford to do that, jump in the Discord, message one of the admins, and we can hook you up with our overtime stuff. But again, it really matters a lot to us that we are able to get the support so that we can keep doing this. Anyway, here is a nice little preview of it, and I hope you enjoy. Solidarity. Now, the New Orleans printers, who by 1892 had been reorganized as Local 17 of the International Typographical Union, were actually the first organized printers union in the South, forming all the way back in 1810. And at the time of the general strike in New Orleans, they were the second oldest union in the city. And the printers played a key role in organizing the next step in New Orleans uh, labor movement's evolution, evolving from the CMEC, which had largely covered just workers on the docks, to organize the Central Trades and Labor Assembly, a larger federation of unions that would cover workers across the entire city, and to coordinate solidarity between them and support for strikes by member unions. And so at this time, there were basically a lot of smaller unions because everything was trade based and yes. uh, there wasn't really like shops that were organized, you know, with everybody in one union. It was, you know, in this case, the printers union or mm-hmm. in the dock uh, workers, there were actually multiple different jobs where each of those jobs would have their own union. Yeah, exactly. And it's. It creates this dazzling cornucopia of, of, of a million little unions all set up into their different crafts. So it's like, no, we this this union represents purely the interests of, of say, the people who weigh the stuff that's on the docks. And here's the people who sort the stuff that's mm-hmm. on the docks. And here's the people that, like, you know, check that the manifest against what's actually there to make sure you got everything and stuff wasn't stolen. And that's a separate thing. And you'd see that in a million different trades where you'd subdivide everything into these little tiny groups. And it's, it's not surprising that it would only be a little over a decade later that some enterprising unionists would get together and say, what if there was just one big union? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, Hmm, there seem to be some problems with this. What if we went the other way? And so, At the time when the Central Trades and Labor Assembly was uh, organized, it was actually quite radical for the time because it was completely integrated. It had both black and white workers across the various unions within it. Now, some of those unions themselves were segregated, but the organization as a whole made no distinction between black and white workers. And so uh, George E. McNeil, a contemporary labor writer at the time, hailed the formation of the assembly in the city uh, to unify the efforts of workers in New Orleans. Quote, The formation of this association of trades and labor unions helped break the color line in New Orleans more than any other thing. Since the emancipation of the slaves, and today, the white and colored laborers of that city are as fraternal in their relations as they are in any part of the country. End quote. And so... By 1890, following the downfall of the Knights of Labor as sort of the first attempt to build a true national organization that would unite various uh, trade unions around the country, the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, arrived in the city and formed the Working Men's Amalgamated Council, 
to coordinate organizing amongst all of the affiliated AFL unions in the city. And this would sort of become the final evolution, as it were, of starting with the, the, the Cotton Men's Executive Council, moving to the Central Trades and Labor Assembly, and then becoming the Working Men's Amalgamated Council. And so this council was formed from all 49 of the city's AFL unions and had two delegates from each. And despite the young age of the, the organization, again, only formed in 1890, uh, by the time of the general strike, just two years later, the council had become the leading union organization in the city. And its first chair was typographical union local 17 head, James Leonard. And so while the, you know, the printers may not seem like the necessarily the shock troops of, of a general strike, they did play an outsized role in its organization. But that being said, as with most labor organizations in the 1800s, the organizing work by these, these unionists was a constant battle just to force companies not to fire any worker who chose to join a union. But despite the total lack of any actual like written labor protections in the law, Thousands of New Orleans workers still came together to fight for their collective benefit, and in doing so, threatened the social structures that Southern rulers had cemented into place following the Civil War. And so that's the backdrop uh, for, for getting us to 1892, really setting the scene for how in New Orleans, you know, what started out as basically a pragmatic understanding of the uh, the the racial makeup of the city and an understanding that shippers were not going to be able to get by only hiring white workers. Eventually over time as white and black workers worked together more into an actual genuine sense of solidarity among many of the workers and into a united labor front in the form of the working men's amalgamated council. And so in late October, 1892 workers in the teamsters scalesmen and packers unions Basically, all folks involved in logistics, like moving uh, stuff around the city, weighing stuff, packing stuff, getting shipping stuff, uh, which were often, by the way, some of the lowest paid work uh, for, and still is, unfortunately, in a lot of places, uh, unless you know you're at UPS and you're a teamster and you just won a fantastic job uh, with your great new contract. But so yeah, these are some of the lowest paid jobs in the city. And those unions came together and, and, and as the so-called triple alliance between these three unions in order to jointly confront the local business front group, this cartel, basically, the New Orleans Board of Trade, what would oftentimes now probably be referred to as your local chamber of commerce. And like most bosses at the time, and of course still today, the board refused completely to agree to bargain with the unions to improve their conditions. The alliance demanded a 10-hour day, increased pay for overtime, and union control of hiring in order to provide some semblance of control to workers over their lives. Now, in response to that, the bosses unsurprisingly balked, but not with a just flat blanket outright refusal to deal with any labor organization whatsoever. Instead, they attempted to split the Young Labor Alliance along racial lines by specifically singling out the Teamsters, who were an integrated local with a majority black membership, for their ire. The Board of Trade agreed to sign contracts with the Scalesmen and Packers, but they were adamant that they would never, quote, enter into any agreement with N-words, end quote. Uh, well, that's about as explicit as it could possibly be, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and I know that there's even more uh, explicit explicit language from the the bourgeois uh, coming in the in the rest of this too. Well, that one's about as explicit as it gets. Well, but I'm just, we're just not going to say I'm not going to say that word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I meant like there's there's like a a line from the press later. Oh, yeah, no, it's real bad. This is a great... For folks who've heard me rant about the press as a part of the state, uh, you're about to hear a lot of that in this episode (laughs) because it's bad, folks. Uh, Because, again, and and to to that point, continuing their racist tirade, the board representatives claimed that if they signed an agreement with the Alliance, including the Teamsters, that that would mean negotiating with an Alliance, quote, controlled by a big black Negro, end quote. Yeah. Yeah, racist they as just, fuck. It's not even like veiled in any way. It's just open, just ridiculous racism. Yeah, and this is not that far removed from our lifetimes. Like if you have grandparents that grew up in the Great Depression, this is like what 40 years before mm-hmm. that. This is not that far away. And well, and I mean, I mean we don't even have to go back that far. I mean, consider we have video and stuff from the the civil rights movement in the 60s. You have people talking like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, That's frankly true. in some parts of the US you have people talking like that now. Mm-hmm. Uh so like it's Yeah, it's fucking wild, but the thing is, uh you know, it's funny because if you listen to so much of the modern scholarship that talks about labor and race relations, your first inclination would be to think, oh, damn, the bosses got them. They cornered them. They brought out the trump card, the fact that every white worker at all times is always inherently racist. So clearly the white workers will abandon the black workers in this story. Uh, Although, spoiler alert, if that's what happened, we wouldn't be making this episode. Mm Mm-hmm. And the thing is, the press joined in to help the Board of Trade, who, of course, there was a lot of overlap between the members of the Board of Trade and the ownership of the press. They immediately just began printing just lies about citizens who didn't support the workers being attacked by, quote, mobs of brutal Negro strikers beating up all who attempted to interfere with them, end quote. Uh, the fact that that didn't happen, there's literally no evidence whatsoever that there was any violence whatsoever by the, the, the many members of the Teamsters, that there were any mob attacks against anybody who opposed the workers. Uh, no evidence of any of this, uh, but it didn't matter because the point, again, by the press was to stoke vicious racism in order to split the workers against each other. But unfortunately for them, one of the most single effective ways, and we have seen this throughout history time and time and time again, and you, to the point where you can actually look at it with statistics, <laughs> that one of the most effective ways to dispel racist notions from anybody is through shared struggle against a common foe. And by refusing to deal with the workers, the bosses made it very clear who their real enemy was. And so on October 24th, all three unions declared a citywide strike and that it would not end until the bosses signed deals with all of them. It's basically, you deal with all of us or you deal with none of us. Hell yeah. And this is like huge. This is one of the largest documented early strikes that broke the color line. It saw black and white workers standing shoulder to shoulder with both skilled, in big air quotes, and unskilled workers across different professions fighting together against their common exploiters. This time I'm walking to New Orleans. I'm walking to New Orleans. I'm going to need to pay. 
get through walking these blues When I get back to New Orleans I've got my suitcase in my hand Yes, I'm going back home to stay. Yes, I'm walking to New Orleans. You used to be my honey. Till you spent all my money. No use for you to cry. I see you by and by. Cause I'm walking to New Orleans. No time for talking I've got to keep on walking New Orleans is my home That's the reason why I'm gone Yes, I'm walking to New Orleans 